Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. We should, I think should make uh, decisions about our lives based not on how can I pass on as many genes as I want to, uh, but what's going to make me happy and what's going to make people in my life happy. That was Dr. Steve Stewart-Williams on Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We've been on a bit of an evolutionary science trend recently, which I have loved. So in this episode, I spoke with an evolutionary psychologist, Steve Stewart-Williams, who recently came out with a really cool book called The Ape That Understood the Universe, How the Mind and Culture Evolve. And this book takes a really novel approach. It encourages the reader to take a look at humankind from the alien perspective. I love that idea of the alien perspective on humans. It really gives us a chance to look at ourselves as a species, which can really change the way we're thinking about ourselves. I I was a double major in psychology and anthropology in college, and I took a class called the human animal. And I think about that class a lot because I think we don't think of ourselves as a species or in this sort of global perspective very often. We're so caught up in our day-to-day that we forget sometimes this shift into this bigger, I don't know, perspective shift and looking at things from, from this way. I also really like the uh, alien perspective exercise because it reminds me of actually an act in the self as context component of act, which is where we encourage you know, our clients to, to shift perspectives in order to get more information or different information, a different frame as what Matthew Blatt and uh, RFT would say, a different frame on what we're looking at. And so it's really helpful to look at ourselves as a species from a, this different perspective. Absolutely. And I think it's so useful. But what I think is really interesting, and this came up early on in my conversation with Dr. Stuart Williams, is that looking at ourselves in this way can sometimes be a little bit of a minefield. So we're going through a really important period of time, politically and otherwise, where exploration of things like gender differences and romantic behaviors is really under scrutiny. And we're wondering whether behavior is should be tolerable because it's natural, or if it should be intolerable because, you know, it's hurtful to somebody else, even if it is natural. And so I think that those are really important things that come up when you're talking about evolutionary science. Yeah. And what I really like as as you were talking to Dr. Stuart Williams in this interview, Yael, is that he makes it really clear that just because a behavior happens to be, you know, quote, natural or based in evolution doesn't mean that it's moral or helpful or acceptable. And this is a really important idea, too, when we think about in our own lives moving toward our values, even when it might go against some sort of urge or drive or thought or emotion that we're having, we can still sometimes do better. Yeah, it makes me think about actually in a 
in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Stefan Guyane on who talks all about our eating behavior. And it really relates to our relationship with, you know, eating and also exercise that sometimes our, our urge, our instinct uh, goes against our values around how we want to take care of ourselves. So this is a, a helpful way to, to view uh, some of the behaviors that we're getting kind of entangled with. Yeah. And another quick personal example that always comes up for me is about parenthood. I mean, we're sort of wired to respond to our kids, right? If they're sad, it sort of triggers an urge in us to take care of them. And I think in this way, it's not necessarily even an immoral behavior, but it's sometimes not a very useful behavior if we're valuing things like building resilience in our kids or building independence. And so I think for that reason, it can be really useful even if it doesn't feel so natural to kind of take a step back from our urges and really be curious about them. You know, is it a useful urge? Is it something that's consistent with our values or is it not? So Dr. Stuart Williams provides a really nice overview of how we can learn more about evolutionary psychology in ways that help us to become more informed and make more useful decisions for our own lives. So let's take a listen. In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Steve Stewart-Williams, professor of psychology at Nottingham University, Malaysia campus, and the author of the just-released book, The Ape That Understood the Universe, How the Mind and Culture Evolved. And I'll quickly mention that I'm speaking to him from Boston while he's in Malaysia, so if there's any audio issues, you'll understand why. We are going to discuss Dr. Stuart Williams' mind-bending book, which offers readers an opportunity to step away from their held understanding of human nature by turning it upside down and inside out. Dr. Stuart Williams' work explores how evolutionary biology and psychology can help us to better understand the human mind and human behavior and our culture. His work focuses on altruism, sex differences, and the philosophical implications of evolutionary theory. He draws on animal research, cross-cultural research, and laboratory research to help us learn about how the mind and culture evolve. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Your book sets the reader up to take on the alien perspective in exploring the human species, which is a pretty interesting approach. And it's an eye-opening opportunity to take on an outside view of ourselves. So I love so many of the lines in your book, and I love the premise of the book, but one of my favorite lines underscores how confusing we might be for an alien. You write, a lot of what we do makes about as much adaptive sense as a hedgehog rolling into a ball in the face of oncoming traffic. So while we like to think evolution helps us to be adaptive and intelligent about behaviors, apparently we're not quite right. Sure. Uh, okay, so that, that line uh, refers to a phenomenon called uh, evolutionary mismatch. And the basic idea here is, so, so the hedgehog crossing the road, right? So you imagine it's a late at night and it's a hedgehog wandering around the forest happily. Uh, suddenly it comes to this uh, strange area of forest, which is actually a road. So as it wants to walk across the road, starts walking across. Suddenly, though, there's, there are um, two lights shining down on, this, on the hedgehog. It's a car in the distance heading toward uh, the hedgehog. Uh, what the hedgehog probably should do in that circumstance is, is run for it. Run, try to get off the road as quickly as it possibly can uh, before it gets turned into a pancake. Um, unfortunately, though, um, the, the hedgehog isn't going to do that. What it's probably going to do is it's going to get a shock and it's going to roll up into a big spiky ball and just stay right there. Um, now, rolling up into a spiky ball is quite useful in its natural setting. Like if a predator comes along, starts sniffing around, maybe think this, is gonna, this hedgehog is going to make a good meal. If it rolls up into a spiky ball, that might dissuade uh, the predator. Um, but when it's face-to-face uh, face with a car, that's really not going to work. So that's, so that's not adaptive behavior. And the question is, what does that mean that um, – does, does that like falsify an evolutionary uh, account of hedgehog behavior? Uh, the answer is that it doesn't, and the reason is that um, the road isn't the natural environment in which the hedgehog evolved. You know, roads are very, very new. They're evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily novel situations for a hedgehog. Um, it hasn't evolved any kind of uh, adaptive response to, uh, to that particular threat. The moral of that story for us is that in a lot of ways, we're in the same boat as the hedgehog. So in a lot of ways, the environment that we currently live in uh, it's very different than the one in which our species spent most of its evolutionary history. Good example, maybe the best known example, uh, is that human beings, like a lot of primates, uh, we have a sweet tooth. And we really, really love sweet food. Uh, we like to eat as much of it as we can. And in our natural setting, like throughout the vast majority of our, of our evolutionary history, 
that was fine. Uh, that, that motivated us to eat uh, good, calorie-rich uh, sources of food whenever we had the opportunity. Um, in our modern environment, though, that, that's not a recipe for success. We can uh, just eat too much really, really bad food. We can eat too much chocolate and cheesecakes and, and desserts and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, we can eat pretty much an unlimited amount to the detriment of our health. Um, and that's because we're just in a very different environment, a very different food environment uh, than the one in which we evolved. Right. So, so in that way, all of these adaptive uh, traits that we've sort of landed on, to some extent, no, many of them don't work in our modern environment. So that's kind of where the hedgehog example comes in. I mean, the, those spikes are so yeah. useful, but not in front of a car that's coming right at them. And I think that, that those ideas um, are so helpful in the space of clinical psychology, because I think that if we can understand some of our natural tendencies um, then and understand the ways in which they may or may not be adaptive, we can sort of make better choices. And that was something you and I had discussed a little bit as we were making plans to, to do this episode, the ways in which evolutionary psychology can actually be helpful for people in their everyday lives. So, and I, and I think, and we'll talk a bit about this, but, you know, we have this idea that evolutionary science is sort of very academic, but I think that more and more it's being brought into the clinical psychology space. But I think that you make a note of this. It's, it's another one of my favorite lines. This is a very funny book. I will tell the listeners it's, it's very amusing. Um, but you write that many psychologists have an empty space in their brains where their knowledge of evolution should be. So I'm curious, um, you know, in what ways do you think that knowing more about evolution and our natural instincts is something useful for people in their everyday lives? How, how can we take advantage of that information and that knowledge? Uh, sure. Can I first say, I, think I was a little bit apprehensive um, about that line. I thought, I really hope that that's taken in the, in the spirit that it's intended. <laughs> I thought it was very <laughs> playful and fun. Good, good, good. Uh, well, I'm glad. But yeah, but the basic idea is, uh, like you say, I think that um, taking an evolutionary uh, approach to, to ourselves and, and to human nature, I think, uh, that, that can inform uh, our understanding of psychology uh, for a start. I think that um, also understanding uh, animal behavior. And if, we, if just people knew more about um, the behavior of other animals, I think that as well would um, just help us uh, to understand ourselves, uh, ways in which we are more like other animals than we might have guessed, um, uh, ways as well uh, that we're different. Uh, in terms of practical uh, implications of that knowledge, um, I guess just uh, springboarding from the, the hedgehog and the, the sweet tooth example, I guess a kind of one, one very general lesson there uh, would be that, especially in our modern environment, but we can't just sort of automatically trust our emotions and our, and our desires are going to lead us into adaptive behavior in, in any sense of that term, um, because we're in such a different environment uh, from the one uh, in which we evolved. So, so a lot of so. Yeah. You know, I think some people think it's a good idea to just follow your feelings and follow your instincts. Uh, perhaps in a more natural environment, that might be a good idea, lead us into more adaptive behaviors. I think in, in the modern world, uh, often it's not going to do that, and we should maybe check ourselves and, and think about it. There's this very typical example from clinical psychology that um, we're really wired to sort of lean towards negative interpretations of neutral stimuli. So that sort of comes from, you know, we could think about it from our caveman days. It's safer for us to assume that there's a saber-toothed tiger coming at us than to miss any cues that there might be a saber-toothed tiger coming at us. And so for that reason, we might assume that a negative event is on the horizon when it isn't. And at one period of time in our in our sort of evolutionary history that might have served us well, but in uh, our current modern environment where, you know, for the most part, there's very few, relatively speaking, dangers that are sort of going to come at us from our natural environment. And, um, you know, we're well protected. We have shelter, uh, you know, from the elements and we're not in as much danger. And yet we feel this sense of, you know, there could be danger lurking around every corner. And I think what you're saying is that it can be helpful to recognize that sometimes our emotions are less informative than they are sort of a, a bit of an evolutionary mismatch for our modern environment. Yeah, indeed. So I think if, if you understand that that principle you're talking about, where we, we have this negativity bias, uh, just understanding that potentially could let us take a step back from those emotions and, and just kind of defuse them a bit. Uh, just, just understanding, you know, why, why do I feel so nervous about this? Uh, well, there is a quite strong evolutionary rationale for why I might be over-worrying about this. 
and, and just I think potentially just even just understanding that could scale back the strength of that, that negative uh, response and, and the strength of that worry uh, potentially. There's a converse uh, as well though which I think is perhaps that in other ways we don't worry enough about certain things, maybe not as individuals but as a society, uh, there are perhaps evolutionarily novel threats. Oh, like what? Give us some examples. Well, global global warming would be would be one example. I think um, it's completely evolutionarily unprecedented. It's not the sort of thing that we've evolved to worry about. So I think, and it's something that I think that we should worry about uh, as as a society at least, um, because it doesn't come so naturally to us. It's perhaps uh, an, a taste. It's like an acquired taste. We need to like learn uh, to worry an, an appropriate uh, amount about things like that. Right. Uh, and, and I guess also things like Big Macs, uh, eating too many Big Macs, eating too much junk food, things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah that sweet tooth, that desire for fatty yeah. foods. And, indeed, indeed. We need to make sure that we are worried enough about that. Yeah. You know, not to the point of an anxiety disorder, but just that these are bad for you if you eat them uh, too much. Yeah, this idea is really built into one of the very popular and evidence-based approaches to to doing therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And in this kind of therapy, what what clinical psychologists do is they help their patients, their clients, to identify both the emotions but also the values, and then. Uh, better clarity on their present circumstances. And so I think from an evolutionary point of view, it's kind of useful to take in the information, but then um, take a step back and use that as one piece of information instead of emotions being the entire driver of all behavioral decisions. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, like emotions, at least the basic emotions, very plausibly have an evolutionary origin. Uh, and what that means is that their function is, is not to make you happy. It's not to make the world a better place. Uh, the function of those emotions ultimately is just a, to pass on the genes uh, that gave rise to those emotions in the first place that, that caused their development. And this, you know, um, most people I don't think that its main value in life is to pass on their genes. That I think would be a very strange value to hold. I think people value other things. And so I think it's good for them to know uh, that that these basic emotions and motivations, that kind of thing, that then they don't necessarily align with your values. They they instead are just about passing on the genes giving rise to them. If that's not your value uh, as an individual that you want to uh, focus on in your life, then uh, you should do some second guessing of of your emotions and motivations. Right. Jonathan Haidt, who's a moral psychologist, has this great line where he sort of says, you know, there's kind of two questions that we can ask. What is the point of life and what's the point within life? And I think that you're sort of pointing to that. And what you're sort of pointing to and you talk about in great detail in your book is that the purpose of, of life is really to pass on genes. And so I wonder if you could talk us through, I mean, you, it's a very complex idea, but I wonder if you could... Um, talk us through some of the generalities of, of the gene machine idea. So for those of you who don't remember evolutionary science from high school or college, um, Steve's book offers a great in-depth exploration of the workings of natural selection. So I wonder if you could talk us through some of that. Yeah, okay. So it is quite a complex uh, idea, but I think probably the simplest way I can think of uh, to articulate the, genes, the uh, gene machine idea is just simply that um, that organisms are designed, designed in quote marks, designed by natural selection uh, to pass on their genes. And the rationale for that is, is pretty simple, really. It's that if you imagine any gene, uh, if that gene has effects on the organism that mean that that, that organism won't pass on its genes, um, or that mean that that organism will pass on uh, its genes at a slower rate than its next-door neighbor, uh, that gene is going to eventually just evaporate from the gene pool, disappear from the gene pool. Um, and it's just going to leave genes that do have effects that mean that the organism with those genes will pass those genes on. Okay, those are the genes that natural selection will retain. Um, and the net effect of selection, taking um, retaining genes uh, that cause the organism in which they're found to pass on those genes uh, is that organisms evolve into, into gene machines. They, have, they evolve basically into uh, entities that look like their sole purpose in life is to propagate their genetic material pass on their genes in various different ways, mainly by having offspring. So that's that's the gene machine idea. Yeah, and, and I think that understanding sort of the importance of reproducing oneself and having offspring um, really sets you up to, as an evolutionary scientist, to, to really be interested in the relationship behavior on, on the level of 
sex, courtship, partnership, and parenting. And, and that's, uh, those are some of the areas that you dive into. And, and they're somewhat controversial. So I, I do want to have you talk to us a little bit about um, what we know about the evolution of sex, courtship, partnership, and parenting. But before we do, I was hoping that we could start off by talking a bit about why evolution science can be so controversial. Why, for example, is there so much controversy about sex differences? Um, and this is kind of an interesting time for your book to be coming out because there's the backdrop of the Me Too and the Time's Up movement. So understandably, thinking about sex differences and sort of highlighting the biological differences and, and the rationale behind them and sort of, um, it, it can be something of a minefield. Yep. Yep, indeed, that's very true. Um, so why is it so controversial? I kind of, I vacillate in my, in my thoughts about that. So sometimes... I think I don't I don't really understand why it would be so controversial uh, and why it would be quite so upsetting to people the idea that in, in a certain number of traits there are generally quite modest average differences between the sexes. You know that that on average the sexes are not identical. Um, a lot of the traits where we have the differences are relatively neutral. They're not sort of things that to my mind, would necessarily be uh, too upsetting that there, there are average differences between the sexes. Um, like I say, the differences are often quite modest. The differences between the means are quite modest. And within each sex, you get a lot of variation. Uh, and there's, there's overlap between the very a lot of overlap usually between the variation uh, for men versus women. Um, a lot of the traits, I think, that are discussed in the book, uh, if anyone comes off, if either sex comes off worse, it's often men rather than women. So, for instance, uh, on average, men are more physically aggressive uh, than women. That's a cross-culturally consistent kind of finding. And I think that puts men rather than women in a bad light, right? Like, unless you think that, um, unless one thinks that aggression is a desirable trait and violence is a desirable trait, then that's sort of saying that more men than women um, have this, this negative trait. Uh, so that's, that's one uh, reaction that I have, is that I, I don't... Fully understand why it's quite so controversial. Do you think that one of the one of the things that can be troubling is if people get this sense, and you you sort of mentioned this before, that because if if we say you know there is a biological difference and there is something inherently different about men's level of aggression compared to women's level of aggression, that in some sense it almost gives permission for aggressive behavior, and so that maybe is a little bit of a danger zone to say, oh, well, it's natural and therefore okay. And I think you talk a lot about that in your book, that that's actually not what evolutionary science tries to suggest. And in fact, quite the opposite, you know, just because it's natural does not mean it's okay or, or good or permissible. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, um, the uh, mistake of assuming that uh, to say something is evolved means that it's necessarily good or morally permissible. Uh, that's called the, often called the naturalistic fallacy. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's quite a common reaction um, is to think that just because something is adaptive, it must be good or it must be to say something's adaptive in the evolutionary sense means that it must be adaptive in the everyday sense. In other words, adaptive in terms of creating a good life. It really doesn't apply uh, imply that at all. Like like you say, so if if men on average are more uh, violent than women, which they seem to be, uh, uh, an evolutionary perspective may explain that. But there's no reason at all to think that explaining it is justifying. Um, I think that you need to draw quite a big distinction between explanation uh, and our moral values, and we really shouldn't derive our, our moral values from um, our understanding of, of e our evolutionary history and some of the sort of innate contributions. I think my, my favorite example, I think, is, um, uh, well, well, there's aggression on the one hand. So to say that aggression is natural uh, is not to say it's good. In fact, aggression is natural but bad. On the other hand, you have things like medicine, um, uh, universal declaration of human rights, all these kind of things are uh, human-made, but but are good, despite not being adaptations. They're, they're good things, morally good things. Um, so, I th so I agree with you. I think that is one of the reasons that people don't like it, is they think it's justifying it. Sometimes they think we're stuck with it, as I think is another issue. And it's not nice to think that we might be stuck with uh, undesirable uh, kind of traits. Uh, they're not necessarily right about that either. I think um, in some cases we can move beyond uh, evolved, uh, evolved traits. You know, like natural selection might give us a, a push in a certain direction, but like our genes are only one one influence among many. 
shaping us. So there are social factors that come in as well, and those social factors can counteract uh, evolved tendencies. Uh, we know they can, right? If you look at uh, how rates of aggression have come down uh, over the ages, um, slowly but surely, uh, over the decades, centuries, millennia, um, levels of violence have come down, despite the fact um, that aggression and, and violence seem to be natural propensities within human nature. There's also actually another reason uh, that people are quite wary of, of discussion of sex differences. Um, I think it's because we have quite a long history um, of, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s in particular. So we've got, we've got a long history uh, of, of society in general and scientists uh, specifically uh, making very, very uh, sexist claims, uh, very, very poorly backed, in fact, not, not empirically backed, claims about the sexes um, that are very sexist. Um, I've got a, a quote in my book, actually, um, from a scientist from the 1800s. Uh, his name was Gustave Le Bon, and he said something along the lines of that. Um, he said, okay, sure, 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 there are, there are some distinguished women, sure, um, but they're about as rare as like a two-headed gorilla or any other monstrosity. And he, he was a scientist. Exactly. So terrible things like that have been said in the past and people have used these kind of things to justify keeping women out of the public sphere keeping them in the kitchen uh, that kind of thing I think that the wariness uh, about the discussion of sex differences traces uh, in large part back to that um, I think and I think that's a quite an understandable reaction why people would be a little bit dubious about uh, treading on that territory again uh, so just to be clear, I think that the kind of sex differences that are discussed in the book are nothing like that. Um, I don't think there's any merit at all to uh, the claim that distinguished women are equivalent to two-headed gorillas. Uh, and, like, and like I said uh, before, if anything, a lot of them put, put uh, men rather than women in a, in a not-so-good light. Um, so yeah, so some of the differences that I discuss. Uh, so one of them, besides the aggression one, uh, another one that seems to be kind of controversial, so walking into another landmine here, um, <laughs> <Go for it. laughs> uh, uh, is that, uh, that on average it seems to be the case uh, that men are more interested uh, in casual sex and sexual variety uh, than women. There's an, there's an average difference there. Um, it is not a trivial difference. Um, it's certainly not... Like, like it's not a dichotomous difference such that all men are interested in casual sex and only casual sex. No women are interested. It's not a difference like that. Um, but it has an effect size, typical estimate, maybe like 0. 0.8. Um, so That's a pretty significant that means, effect like, size, yeah. It, it, it is. It is indeed, yeah. So um, basically means that there's nearly a standard deviations difference between the mean for men in terms of interest in casual sex and the mean for women. And I think quite a sort of an intuitive way to put it might be to say that if you were to take completely random one man, one woman, um, the man would be more interested in casual sex than the woman around two-thirds of the time, maybe 70% of the time. So so not always, certainly not always. There is overlap. But well, I, I recall yeah. from your book you described a really interesting study, and you can correct me if I get this wrong, but the study was something like um, the research assistants approaching men and women in a public space and basically uh, hitting on them and in some cases, you know, inviting them to go back to their house to have casual sex. And what they found was that basically no women uh, said yes to the invitation, at least for casual sex, whereas a good portion of the men did say yes. Is that, am I remembering that right? Yeah. So, no, so you're, you're exactly right. That is, that is what they found. They actually found that 75% of men uh, said yes to the invitation. Uh, the, the exact wording was, uh, would you go to bed with me, I think. And 75% of men uh, said yes to that. Uh, of the remaining 25%, uh, some of them, most of them were sort of quite apologetic. Uh, some of them said, well, thank you, but I, I'm actually I'm meeting my fiancé. Some of them even asked for a rain check. Like, I'm meeting my fiancé, but maybe, <laughs> for maybe some other time. Uh, so 75% of men, as opposed to 0%, like, like you say, 0% of women in that study. Uh, it's been replicated various times. Uh, the exact numbers vary, of course. How do you know that that's not simply caused by, um, you know, social engineering and sort of the expectations that we place on men and women? And I, 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 I'm sort of asking this question with a little bit of background, having read your book, but I wonder if you can explain sort of how you rule out um, culture as, as causing all of these kinds of differences, at least in the realm of ca casual sex. So, yes, yeah, so I wouldn't rule out uh, that culture does play a role here. Um, I think that it's, it's one, one of several factors. Uh, in the uh, would you go to bed with me study in particular, um, I think 
cultural norms uh, would come into it. I think also that it's a lot riskier uh, for a woman to go off with some random guy she doesn't know than it is for a guy to go off with some random woman that he doesn't know. Um, so that's going to. I think that's why it's such a big difference. Even though other ways of measuring interest in casual sex, the difference isn't so big. Um, but in terms of how do we know that it's not just culture, I think there are there are several. Uh, lines of evidence that suggest that it's not just culture. Uh, one is that even when uh, even when the culture pushes against this kind of tendency, the tendency seems to stubbornly uh, remain. So we have a long history, um, uh, Western societies, for instance, of trying to dampen men's stronger inclination uh, to, for sexual variety and the like, uh, sort of uh, monogamy norms, uh, threats of, of hellfire and damnation uh, for sleeping with more than one person within the Christian moral system, for instance, uh, social pressure to not to engage in that. Despite all that, nonetheless, uh, the sex difference uh, does remain. Uh, hence, uh, that, it's, that in a lot of cases, the sex difference appears uh, despite culture. Uh, another line of evidence is that uh, there's a correlation uh, within each sex, a correlation between testosterone levels, uh, like prenatal testosterone levels, and uh, interest in casual sex. And of course, uh, so that, and that's within sex, but of course there's an average difference uh, in prenatal testosterone between the sexes. Um, and that's, that's prenatally, right? So that suggests that probably uh, socialization can't account for that aspect of it. Um, if you find it in all all different cultures. I think that, uh, as far as we know, for wherever we have good data, we seem to find the same sex difference. It's pretty consistent. The sizes uh, vary somewhat, but it's always, uh, you know, comparable in terms of its magnitude, which again is easier to explain uh, in evolutionary terms than in purely socio-cultural terms. And then one last bit of evidence uh, is that there's some evidence that in in societies that are more you know, uh, sort of patriarchal and, and less gender equal, uh, you actually find that the sex difference and in interest in casual sex uh, it tends to be smaller rather than larger, which is kind of the opposite of what you'd expect uh, based on a social role uh, interpretation and the idea that it just comes out of social roles and therefore in societies with bigger social roles, you'd anticipate that that difference would be, would be larger rather than smaller. Uh, sort of counterintuitively, it's the other way around. Wait, so so societies that have more emphasis on on having men in a patriarchal role, the men have less interest in casual sex. Well, the, the sex difference is smaller. Yeah. The sex difference is smaller. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then in societies where people have more freedom, uh, the social roles are not as strongly prescribed, um, and people have you know more scope to do what they want. There's uh, the sex difference seems to grow somewhat, hmm. uh, surprisingly enough. And yeah, it's just, it's not what you'd expect based on a social role interpretation. Yeah. It's also interesting in light of the fact that marital researchers have discovered that marriage actually provides more protective benefits for men than for women. So it's, it, it always kind of strikes me, um, you know, in the conversation where, you know, men might talk about, you know, greater interest in pursuing non-monogamy, um, that that finding bears out pretty consistently in the marital literature, that there's there's benefits for both men and women in marriage, both yeah. for health, both in physical health and psychological health, but that um, the benefits tend to be larger for men. For men, yeah. I've read that. Interesting, right? Really interesting. Yeah. And you know what? I think, I think that's a really good uh, example of how um, to say something is adaptive in the evolutionary sense is not necessarily to say that it's adaptive in the the everyday sense or the sense that we care about, right? So it's, it may be more adaptive for men to have uh, sex with as many women as they can, have as many kids as they can, um, adaptive in the evolutionary sense. But who cares about that, right? Like like a lot of men would probably be not not all, but but a lot might be happier uh, in, in a long term relationship. Uh, they may have fewer offspring in that context, but but. Who cares about that, right? It's, it's, we should, I think we should make uh, decisions about our lives based not on how can I pass on as many genes as I want to, uh, but what's going to make me happy and what's going to make people in my life happy. Right, right. And as a couples therapist, I think this comes up all the time in the therapy room, right, when you have a couple that comes in. And, and I, I've certainly seen that exact example where um, – 
one of the partners might be interested in having an open relationship and the others, it, it's kind of a non-starter. And for them, that would mean an end to the relationship. And so, you know, the individual with an interest in opening up the relationship um, has in, in several circumstances that I can think of um, decided to just tolerate, you know, not fulfilling that drive in order to hold on to that monogamous relationship with that one partner that they've built a life with. And for them, you know, I think that there's some discomfort and some, a sense of loss in, in not being able to pursue what their hormones or their emotions or, or even what their internal narrative might long for. But there's yeah, also yeah. a sense of real satisfaction in being able to decide, uh, make good decisions, make not necessarily good decisions, but decisions that are value consistent in terms of prioritizing their, yeah. their you know, primary partner and, and their relationship with their primary partner. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I guess we, we can't have it all, right? I think uh, we do have conflicting desires. And so uh, most people, you know, not just men, but most people probably have some desire for sexual variety and, and also a desire for a long-term relationship. And, you know, sometimes you, you have to make a decision about which of those options you're going to pursue. Uh, either way, you may potentially miss out on something but, but gain something else. That's and, uh, yeah. I actually, it's, um, I think what you're saying really uh, lines up with a quote that I wrote down from your book just because I, I really liked it. And, and that, I'm going to read you a quote from your book, which is, um, whatever we do as humans, we're left with unfulfilled desires. Human beings are chronically conflicted animals. And that's because that's what selection made us. And so I think yeah. I think you're pointing to something that's so fundamental to being human, which is that we want lots of things, and often the things that we want are in different directions. Um, yeah. But there's something about the way that natural selection has contributed to who we are and how we operate that that that's just a part of of our existence. And I think expecting yeah. it to be otherwise is, is something that um, doesn't serve us well, but recognizing that truth that, that we are sort of inherently conflicted creatures. I think it, there's something really um, lovely about that because it, you, you don't have to fight with it so much. You can, you can sort of say, Oh, well that's just yeah. a part of who I am and who we all are. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel about it as well. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, right before that quote, I actually, uh, it, I think it says something along the lines of, uh, this is the, I don't know, something like, this is the tragedy of the human condition. Uh, something like that. Uh, I think that's too strong, really. It's not, you know, it's, it's more irritating than, than tragic. And I just think, yeah, tragic is too strong. I think it is something that we can take in our stride. And I do agree with you that it is uh, better to confront it rather than deny it. I think for me, at least, that's, that's the way to... Uh, you know, yeah. get past these kind of things as to confront the ways in which the world is uh, the world's maybe not the way that we would choose it to be, uh, rather than be in denial about that. Yeah. So one other area that I think sort of um, encapsulates this idea of having many and sometimes conflicting desires is the area of parental investment. So I had been telling you that one of the areas that I write a lot about, and um, I'm, I'm actually working on a book on this topic, is the idea of work-family conflict and work-family balance. And I think um, in your book, you talk a lot about this idea of parental investment, sort of the difference between the sexes in parental investment and sort of how evolution has differentiated between men and women on that front. And I think this is a really interesting area as it applies to how the work-family conflict plays out in our modern society, right? Because when we evolved, we didn't have offices to go to, and we had more specialized roles um, as in a gendered way, sort of from you know very far back in, in human history. Um, but in this modern society that we live in, uh, we have on the one hand, more opportunities and more more uh, choices to make. And on the other hand, we do desire to, for example, I think men and women, and perhaps women more, uh, you argue women more, might uh, want to invest at a greater level in raising children than men do, except you do see it on both sides, right? There's an interest in raising children and investing in that role and in that relationship. And there's an interest in sort of going into the workforce and making our mark on the, in the public sphere. So I, th yeah. I think that um, I'm sort of curious what you think about how evolution science and psychology informs that conversation about how work-family conflict plays out. Yeah, sure. So you're leading me into another landmine area. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> tread lightly. Uh, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, tread lightly. Um, so I think I think there's a good case to be made uh, that on well, first of all, that, that both sexes in our species are parental. I guess that's that's where I want to start. Um, is to say that so so in most mammals, the females are parental and the males are not. Um, but basically, uh, females are solo mums. They do all the parental care. Um, and dads, are, they're all deadbeat dads. Now, that's uh, not the case in our species. Okay? We're, we're a very atypical mammal in that um, that both sexes very often uh, invest quite heavily uh, in the young, both in terms of uh, direct and, and indirect investment. So that, this is, would be the starting place. So I'm certainly not claiming that, that women are parental and men are not. Um, there do, however, there do seem to be average differences uh, between the sexes. Once again, these differences are not absolute for the man. Uh, plenty of men who are more parental than the average woman, uh, etc. But nonetheless, there do seem to be uh, average differences. Uh, in terms of work-life balance, so I guess just knowing that, let's imagine, so our alien scientist comes along, figures that out about us, um, and just, just assume for the moment that this is actually the case, that there are these average differences and that they're not 100% learned, that there is also a, an innate contribution to the, to the average differences. So the alien knew that. I think the alien would then not be hugely surprised uh, to then discover that more women than men have uh, this work-life balance issue uh, and that um, it's, it's a bigger deal to more women than men. And again, it's, it is a, it's an issue for both, right? I've seen research uh, showing that for both sexes, uh, balancing work and, and family life and home life uh, is an issue, right? Uh, I think, in fact, I recently saw something, I can't remember if it was a Pew study or something like that, showing in fact the gap uh, recently, such that more men were, you know, they were getting closer to women in terms of uh, this being an issue. Um, I think what I'd say, though, is that I would be surprised if uh, this, this average difference in parental inclinations didn't, well, isn't one of the causes that feeds into uh, the work-life balance issue, uh, and I'd be surprised if it wasn't one of the one of the things that means it's more common uh, among women than men to have that that kind of issue. Yeah, and I think too. I mean, one of the other. This is a little bit tangential, but I just thought this was really interesting. That one of the solutions that we as a society often come to in with regard to the work-family balance issue is this idea of if only we could delegate out more child care, right, that that would help women and men sort of worry less about their parenting role and be able to participate more fully in the workforce. And you gave this really interesting example that I personally relate to of kibbutzim, these um, communes that were really common in Israel at the founding of uh, of Israel in the 1940s. Um, and my father actually grew up on one of these, and he grew up in a children's house, which was really common in, in that era. Um, and the way that this kibbutz um, system worked is that they would really specialize the roles. So parents had their roles on the kibbutz, and, and they participated in them fully. And then some of the workers part participated by way of doing childcare. And so the kids would be raised in these houses away from their parents so that their parents could do their work and that the kids were very well taken care of. But ultimately, that system didn't work because parents really wanted to take care of their own children. There was something very biological and, and sort of just an innate drive to want to be the one participating in a lot of the childcare. And I think that that's sort of an important point. And, and I don't know sort of based on your research, how much that is more relevant to women than for men. But my sense is that that's true for both women and men a lot of the yeah. time, that there is this sort of innate desire to participate in the caregiving for our own offspring. And that it isn't, there isn't sort of a simple solution of, oh, well, we just need more childcare that we can delegate that out to somebody else. But it's actually something that we're um, innately driven to do. We desire to be a part of that process. I agree, and I completely agree that it's not just women, it's both sexes uh, have that, that kind of drive. You want to be part of your, your kid's life um, and, yeah, and, and want to spend time with, with your kid and not just delegate it out to other people. So I do think that it definitely applies to, to both sexes. Uh, within uh, the, the uh, keyboard study that I uh, cited found that, uh, that the parents in general were not happy with that situation like, like you described. Um, but that it was often the women in particular who were rarely instrumental in changing things. 
uh, and often um, they were they were fighting against the men. In fact, so so like a lot of the men were sort of holding out. They were saying, um, no, that that's a, a bourgeois kind of tendency, and um, it's it's the wrong way to do it, and we need to just carry on with the current arrangement. Um, but the women in particular were really fighting, which is interesting, right? So it sort of suggests, at least in that case, that rather than being sort of forced into that role by the men, uh, they had to they had to rebel against those men in order to have a greater um, connection with their kids. Uh, men, men as well, you know, were re rebelling against those particular men who thought, no, we've got to carry on this way so that they could do the same thing. Uh, but it did seem to be stronger in women. And, and you know, there are various other lines of evidence that, that do suggest that uh, parental inc inclinations may be stronger uh, on average in women than, than in men. You know, it comes out in play behavior uh, very early on. Um, uh, girls are more likely to engage in play mothering than, than boys are. Uh, that mirrors uh, the pattern that you find in, in other uh, closely related animals, chimpanzees, for instance. Uh, little girl chimps will sometimes like pick up a uh, pick up a log and kind of cradle it and put it in their nest and, and kind of look after it, treat it, treat it in effect like a little chimpanzee doll. Uh, boys do that. Uh, chimpanzee boys occasionally would do that, but it's just less common. Um, so you know, this seems to be that we're mirroring a trend that is found uh, in other species as well. There are prenatal hormonal uh, correlates as well that uh, suggest that it's not 100% a cultural uh, difference. I was just going to um, uh, invite you into one final minefield of these uh, sex differences, <laughs> um, and that is the, uh, and, and you go into some detail about this in the book, but the difference between men and women on the priority placed on the importance of status versus the, uh, the status and wealth versus the importance yeah. of looking good. And this is sort of like an interesting and um, I think also controversial area that we think about this as really being culturally influenced and really um, culturally determined the the way that um, we sort of stereotype, oh, women are more interested in men who have high status and greater wealth, and men are more interested in young, attractive, fertile-looking women. Um, but you argue in the book that there is something that really comes from evolution, and, and that is pretty innate to, to the two sexes, um, which determines that. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about yeah. that difference. Yeah, sure. So this is um, so, so average sex differences in terms of, of mate preferences. Uh, and I think the way I put it, so, so I think a lot of people, and in fact, actually, sometimes uh, evolutionary psychologists will put it this way. They'll say, or, or at least give the impression, so, so men are primarily interested in physical attractiveness in a mate, whereas women are interested in other stuff. They're interested in status and wealth and that kind of thing. Um, now, I actually think that some of the controversy is because that isn't really the right way to describe it. I think that that's, that isn't an accurate description of the findings. Um, I would say, especially with physical attractiveness, that both sexes consider it a pr pretty important to have an attractive mate. You know, not just men. It's both sexes um, are interested in having an attractive mate. It's not the most important priority for either sex, on average, uh, but it's pretty important for both sexes. So the difference is really one, one of degree, and that's that... Um, the average is, is greater for men than for women. Um, there's, there's variation in both sexes, but it's like the, the whole distribution for men has been just shifted up, uh, like, like the volume has been turned up um, for the whole distribution for men uh, relative to women, such that the average is bigger. Um, now that, there are various reasons to think that that does have, uh, there's an innate contribution to that, that it um, does have uh, an evolutionary origin. Uh, one is the fact that it seems to be cross-culturally uh, universal, that you get this uh, particular difference. Um, that's one line of evidence. Uh, there, are, there are various others as well. Um, the theory behind it uh, relates to relates to fertility, and it relates to the fact that so, so fertility is related to age for both sexes, but the relationship is stronger uh, for women than men. So, so fertility is more age dependent for women than men uh, because of because of menopause. So for that reason, the idea is that men evolved to focus more, somewhat more, on cues to youthfulness um, than women did. Now, I think probably for both sexes, youthfulness looks better than, uh, you know, people prefer youthfulness in a mate. It just seems to be somewhat more of a priority for men than women. Uh, the argument being that that's because of, primarily because of, of menopause. Um, other species like chimps, they don't have, they don't have menopause, the females don't. Uh, undergo menopause, so males don't have 
um, the, the preference for youthful uh, females, um, which, which sort of fits quite nicely with the theory that it is about the, the age fertility uh, connection. Uh, so that's that, that's that landmine. Um, the other one is the, the wealth and status one. Uh, and again, I guess I pre preface that by saying that it's not the be all and end all for most women. You know, some no doubt, but um, it, it's one thing among many that people want along with, that women want along with physical attractiveness and uh, intelligence and, um, you know, good character, emotional, uh, emotional balance. A lot of those things, in fact, are actually usually more important uh, to women than things like status and wealth. Uh, but again, the finding seems to be uh, that across cultures, status and wealth are more important on average to women uh, than is the case for men. Yeah, and we've, we won't have time to go into it, but one of the areas that you talk about in your book is altruism and sort of how uh, this idea of altruistic behavior has evolved. And I, I love that. I love the point that altruism is something that we find attractive in mates too, and it's something that um, really drives yeah. uh, interest in potential mates. And and so it, it really isn't just you know those few either you know youth or status and wealth, but um, there's a whole lot of things that uh, we desire, you know. Hence our inner conflict as human creatures. <laughs> Indeed, and the altruism one—that's good news, right? Yeah, that's it is good, good news. So like. A lot, like a lot of the stuff coming out of evolutionary science is a bit of a bummer. You know, some of it is, <laughs> some of it is bad news, but that's one example where it's good news. And, and in fact, I think all, all the altruism stuff, I think, is probably the most optimistic uh, section of the, of the book. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So and if you're I, feeling bummed out. <laughs> read, read that section if you want to yeah, undo exactly. the bummed out. No, I, <laughs> I think that it, it is a really lovely uh, – concept that you go into in, in a great in great detail and I, I love the idea that you know altruism is something that evolved along with a whole lot of other um, tendencies that we have and it's a part of what makes us a cooperative species who who surprisingly helps each other out a lot you know we have this sometimes very negative view of human culture and the way that we interact with one another but if we take a step back and take that alien view we can really see a lot of lovely ways that we um, collaborate and cooperate and and support one another and, and continue to grow and evolve in really interesting and and delightful ways yeah that's right and we need to need to find cultural ways to uh, amp up the altruistic side of ourselves and uh, diminish the, the less pleasant stuff Absolutely. And I think that that's kind of uh, among the many take-home messages from your book and hopefully from this interview, that knowing more about evolution and about how our minds and behaviors have evolved can help us to disentangle our natural instincts to pass along our genes from the choices that would help us to build happier and more fulfilling lives and maybe happier and you know more collaborative and cooperative societies. Um, we're not blank slates. We have evolved to have many natural proclivities that help our genes to pass along. Um, but we've also evolved to have a tremendous amount of flexibility and an ability to choose towards and away from various behaviors and ideas. I don't know yeah. if there's other main take-home messages that you want to make sure to emphasize here, but... No, I like that. I think it's a very good summary. We'll link to your wonderful book uh, so that listeners can find out more about ourselves as apes that understand the universe. <laughs> and again, it's a really fun and funny and enlightening read, so I, I highly recommend it. And please share this episode with folks who you think might enjoy being empowered by knowledge of evolutionary psychology. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.